Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines for over 25 years. Online at thepulp.net. In this Pulp Event Podcast, Jennifer DiGiacomo, editor of the early Doc Savage fanzine, The Savage Society of Bronze, and author and pulp historian Will Murray, discuss the pulp fanzine on its 40th anniversary. The talk was recorded on Friday, August 5, 2022, at Pulp Fest 50 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Well, thanks, everybody. Uh, this panel is the 40th anniversary of the Savage Society of Bronze. It's a fanzine I did uh, when I realized Pulp Fest was doing the 50th anniversary. I thought, you know, I didn't realize I was that old, number one. Uh, and number two, I thought maybe it would make sense to, to do this panel. Um, I was only 16 years old when I started to do this panel. So those of you who are good at math, 40 plus 16 equals 39. <laughs> uh, so anyway, let's kick into this. Let me see. Point. This works for you, but it doesn't work for me. Yeah. There we go. Magic. There you go. Uh, so this is the only long slide. This is the only one. This is a quote from the Collector's Handbook of Bronze by Jay Ryan. Uh, in speaking about Savage Society of Bronze, he said, uh, lasting only three years and seven issues, this five and a half inch by eight and a half inch fanzine packed a mighty punch. It was the only fanzine devoted uh, to Doc Savage at the time uh, and featured many of the best contributors and writers. Ta-da. Uh, to grace the pages of fanzines, the quality of articles remained high throughout its run, and because of this, in the great cover art, Savage Society Bronze ranks as the best fanzine of the 70s and 80s. So that was something it was, I didn't realize that the fanzine was in there, so it was kind of cool to stumble across that. If you want to, I'm going to try to make this work. There we go. Okay, so we're going to slowly click through. So this thing, to, to quote Lester Dan and all the stuff you've done, this thing started in a bookstore. I was 12 years old. There was a bookstore across the street growing up. And, uh, and I know a lot of folks got turned on by, you know, Baumhofer covers and the Bama covers. For me, it was Bob Larkin. And as these covers started to show up in the bookstore, uh, if you can click through, because we add more. I don't know why this is. I want to try this. Oh, oh, oh I got it. And then, uh, um, so these were the covers that I started to see, and I was just so mesmerized by these, and I realized that at some point I needed to read the Doc Savage novels, but I couldn't necessarily afford cover price. Honest to God, this is... Want to click? Click? Okay. Uh, and then I saw the Red Spider, which was the newly discovered Doc, which was... Which I happened to have discovered. <laughs> yeah. Um... So I think we can come back to that a little bit, but that was this. This was it, it made this real. And click again. Uh, the Philippose Farmer book was the one that really brought this to my attention. That this, you know, the conceit that this was a real character, and that's really what brought this to life for me. Quest of the Spider was my very first Doc Savage that I read. I bought at a used bookstore. If you click again, you'll see the version that I had, which is a lot more, a lot more beat up. Um, go to the next slide. Um, I then, I couldn't find anyone who was in a Doc Savage the way I was. So I started to buy the Marvel comic books, and you can click. 
uh, I started to go through all of the letters pages. And back then, they would print the addresses, the home addresses of people. And I started to mail forward, click, click, click. All of these different things I sent out probably 40. You can go to the next slide because there's more. This? This would be so much better if I could click. I'm going to. Oh. There you go. Okay, keep going. Keep going. It works. Oh, it works now. Oh, okay. There we go. Delay. Can you just click forward for me? <laughs> and again. So what I started to do, stop. Uh, I started to send out, these were the, actually the actual stamps I was using was the B stamps that my mom bought back in the 80s. Click through one more. Click through one more. This is what I thought was going to happen. I thought I was going to be receiving, everyone that I wrote to was going to write back. It was going to be spectacular. It was going to be amazing. Click. This is actually what happened. <laughs> yes, you're waiting for the mail to show up and nothing shows up. Mom, did anything show up? Click to the next one. Next one. Finally, you get a letter, and you are so excited. And I'm sure all the folks who were doing this originally by snail mail, it was so exciting. It was like you got a present, and you didn't know what, what was going to be in there. Click to the next slide. Shelby Peck was the first person to respond to me. He was a school teacher in Torrington, Connecticut. He was incredibly kind. That's actually a picture of him with his daughter, Lana, who I've become friends with. Um, he's since passed away, but I've been corresponding with her, and he kept all of the records of all of this. I've lost all of my archives. Uh, so at some point, I'm going to drive up there, and I'm going to run through all this stuff. Go to the next slide. Gary Goodman, who did the artwork for most of the issues, he was the second person to respond. Um, this was actually him at my house. Uh, my parents couldn't understand why all these strange people were showing up at, at the house to chat with me. Uh, on his way to the Joe Kubert School of Art. And this is the first piece of art he sent me. Click. So this is his drawing of Monk. Uh, I've never published this because it was in color. So when I do sort of a box set of all of Saturday Society of Bronze, I want to be able to use this as a reprint. Uh, but he just, he captured the characters and was so passionate, so passionate about Doc Savage and got into a lot of arguments with a lot of other fans. Go to the next slide. Uh, so this is Lynn Culler, who uh, was the next person I got connected to. And I, for those of you who were at the panel last night, talking about the kindness and the welcoming, I am 16 years old. I'm sending out envelopes to people, asking if they can help out, write an article for a fanzine. And everyone was so welcoming and shared, you know, more people to talk to. You can click to the next one. I think you'll recognize this gentleman to my left. Uh, Will was so supportive. I didn't even realize how important you were in the fandom. And it was just another person I was talking to. Uh, when we get to the cover uh, of the first issue, you were not the first author's name because you weren't the first person I talked to. And I was very particular about that. I'm wondering, do you remember do you have any memories of sort of our first contact and, and me reaching out? No, other than letters. Oh, it was so memorable. Come on. <laughs> well, uh, it's a long time ago. <laughs> um, no, I just, you know, one of the frustrating things about writing as much as I do is you go from one thing to the other to the other and you don't dwell on it. And so you don't necessarily retain memories 
except under extraordinary circumstances. Even those go away if you do more extraordinary things later. So I remember your letters in the general sense. I think they were handwritten. They some of them were typed. Crayons. Yeah. yeah, and uh, they they tended to be closely packed, but short, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I think some of my memories is, you know, when I cleaned up the family house a few years ago, I was throwing away a lot of correspondence that I didn't want to throw away because the space wasn't there anymore. Right. And I pack-ratted a whole bunch of stuff and had to make hard choices. So I can recall coming across some of those letters at that time. And some of them may survive in my, uh, in my storage unit because I didn't throw everything away. Uh, but at one point I was throwing away a lot. Um, but no, uh, you know, when, when I look at the years of 82, for instance, I know I wrote my first Destroyer novel in 82, even though it wasn't published until 84. That gives me a little bit of a content text for what I was doing professionally. I think I started writing for Starlog in 82 or 83. So I was writing for you just when my professional writing career was starting to mount its earliest steps. And as a writer who started in fanzines, you know, I didn't make a distinction between professional and fanzine writing because it was all interesting and it was still fairly new to me. So, um, so when, you know, looking at the first issue again and you reminded me of what was in the second issue, one of the things I, I, I can say about it is you, it was a very modest magazine, and you know I couldn't write long articles for it. They would it would eat up most of the issue. Yeah. So I you know I tended to want to be in most every issue of anything I liked if I had something to say, and so I did the kind of articles that might be four manuscript pages, typewritten, maybe five, that would occupy two, three, four pages there, and still there'd be room for Sheldy Peck's serial and for whatever else came in. Uh, that's what I can recall about it just by, you know, goosing my memory by looking at that issue. Beyond that, I mean, I had written for other things, other dark scenes before that, and I was writing probably for other scenes that weren't that specific. But, you know, to me it was the challenge of here's another issue coming up do I have anything I can put together? And, you know, a similar magazine I was writing for in approximately this time frame in the beginning was Crypt of Cthulhu, which was Bob Price's Lovecraft fanzine. And his were more pages, but the same format. So I had a little more room there, hypothetically. And someone in Lovecraft fandom once joked that I could write an article with using just a paper clip, a rubber band, some glue, and a few stray facts. And looking at the first article, it's what I have here is essentially a bunch of connected facts assembled into an interesting page and a half article that put in one place everything I knew about all the professional books that referenced professional novels that referenced Doc Savage, including some comic books that people wouldn't necessarily know. So it's like all in one trivia here. Yeah. And page and a half, probably three pages of manuscript, maybe not even, and that fills two pages and you're all set. And the next issue I did the Doc Savage influence, which I think I wrote because many people over the years had 
asked, why does Bantam publish the Doc Savages out of order? Well, I knew, because I'd asked the question. I actually complained about it in you this did. issue, and oh. it was a response then to I me complaining about the order okay. of the Bantam reprints. So I'm right. <laughs> uh, so the, my point is that I knew a lot of people were curious about it, and it bothered some people. So I, writing about it meant I could answer the question, but also explain why it was important that they did it the way they did, because the risk they faced when they did these books was picking books that just didn't resonate, which is why we didn't see the Quest of the Spider for a very long time, even though it was the third book right. in the series. It was not that good. It had some you know, questionable elements in it and some goofy stuff. So they wisely held back on it. Now, it was also true they simply didn't have copies of some of the stories. Because I remember Paul Bonner, the book director at Fondi Nast, reaching out to me and saying, you know, Bantam Books wants to reprint the Ost and the Roar Devil and uh, the Red Terrors. And can you provide photocopies? So, the, you know, they paid me to go to my local library with a photocopy machine and painstakingly photocopy my pulps so that we could all have paperback editions. Um, so, um, so some of it was the decision to pick only the, what they thought were the most commercial stories to start the reprint sequence with, but some of it was simply we, what we have we're going to reprint eventually, and what we don't have we're going to have to find. So. Yeah. Well, and this was also at the time that Doc was going on hiatus when it went to the double novel so we kept getting all of these articles of updates of like Doc's on hiatus and then Doc's not on hiatus, he's coming back. And, and you were the person behind doing the double novels, right? Yeah, I, can, I believe I came up with the double novel idea. And I think, you know, I didn't come up with the idea of split covers, I don't think. Because I didn't think they were the best way to do right. that, you know. But they wanted to... Um, they wanted to reserve the right to reprint those stories and have covers to reprint them with as individual books. So they, they did the split thing because they thought the covers could be recycled. Um, but I don't remember, you know, I, I, what I do remember is when they went to the omnibuses, which were single covers, and the omnibus was my idea, I believe, I saw the first few. I, I know I recommended they try to do a color version of the back cover, Bimba's back cover which they did do, but they got a pretty poor artist doing it. It was not very good. But I, after a few books, I said, you know, I tried to convince them that, you know, um, Doc posing against scenery is not why people buy these books. And I could never convince them, and maybe I stopped trying, that maybe these, these covers should tell stories. You should pick one story that would make a good cover so that it could tell a story and sell that book. Instead, it was these were calendar shots, you know, beefcake against, you know, glaciers and mountains and volcanoes. And it's like, you know, this is not going to attract new audience, a new audience, I don't think. And I don't think it did. I do remember telling them at one point, this is for the doubles, why don't you have Larkin paint a figure of Doc a diagonal in behind him so we'd see two scenes but one image of Doc so we're getting the sense of he's facing two menaces 
but they're not together because the diagonal split meant it was two different stories, two different menaces. They didn't go for that. They didn't think it would work or whatever they didn't think. But I think really what they want to do was reserve the right to recycle those covers, which they never did. Well, they also didn't, I mean, I talked to Bob Larkin about King of Terror, which I have the original painting of. He painted that overnight. That was a, a one-day painting. They knew these reprints were coming up, and they, they weren't, you know, it was like, oh, we don't have the cover. <laughs> Call up Bob, see if, see if he can paint it. So anyway, let's get back to this. Uh, can you yeah, do one more? So David Neil Dyer also was someone who contributed a lot. Uh, he and his wife did, uh, in the first issue, an astrology article about Doc Savage that was mixed reception. Uh, and there was a lot of controversy because I didn't realize that I shouldn't print all of the letters that I got, even when they were negative. So I created a bit of a firestorm by doing all of this publishing. You can go to the next page. Uh, I think most of you here know Al Tonic. Um, Al really took me under his wing uh, very kindly. You can show again. Uh, he took me to the first Polk Con, which was in Cherry Hill, I believe. I met Frank Hamilton, who did artwork for it. And then I also met Walter Baumhofer and his wife, Babe. That's actually Walter Baumhofer signing my Pirate of the Pacific, uh, which is the prize of my collection. Uh, Al told me to bring, he says, he said, I don't know how much money you have, but bring all of it and buy some Walter Baumhofer pulps and have him sign it. And I bought Pirate of the Pacific in 1981, 82, something like that, for $75. And it's now in, you know, whatever, 8.0 condition, signed by Walter Baumhofer. So that was, uh, I, I can never thank Al enough for everything he did for me, everything he did for this convention, uh, et cetera. You can go to the next one. I, so, should, I want to break in just with a piece of trivia, because that's my deal. <laughs> um, that cover was the only Doc Savage painting that hung in Lester Dent's house. You know, um, he, 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 really, he, he really liked that one. I think he did because of the pirate angle, but it was also available to him. But he, he, it hung in his, uh, his foyer for a long time. Yeah, one year when I drove to PulpCon, I drove to Norma Dent's house, uninvited knocked on the door. She could not have been kinder. I have photos of Lester Dent's desk and I have the photo of, of the painting. Because um, it didn't even occur to me that these things existed. Um, and she was just so kind. And I think I left copies of Savage Society of Bronze with her. Um, but it was, that's sort of what the community was like. I mean, people were so welcoming and she wasn't surprised that some stranger just knocked on the door and said, hi, I'm a big fan of Doc Savage, can I come in? So you can go to the next one. So this was the plan after meeting all of these people and, and finding out that they wrote articles. I was so enamored with, with your publishing and, and the, the Secrets of Doc Savage particularly and taking an eight and a half by 11 sheet, folding it in half. This was something I could do. And so these were the people who contributed to the first issue. Um, Shelby Peck and Link and Will uh, Altonic, Bob Sampson uh, wrote an article for me, uh, David Neil Dyer and his wife, Gary Goodman did the artwork, and Frank Hamilton did the back cover. 
again, I, I mean, I can't repeat this enough. I was 16 years old, 15 years old at the time, and everyone was just so kind to share this with me uh, and to help it to get this off the ground. So being quick for the next one, this is the first issue. This is the cover. Uh, that's by Gary Goodman. This also caused a lot of controversy because there was too much hair on Doc's knuckles. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of complaints. I love Al Tonic to death, but he would, he could be very abrupt in his letter writing. <laughs> and so that stirred up a lot. We click to the next one. This is the back cover. Uh, uh, I actually finally got this statue uh, two years ago. I had wanted the statue since I saw this. He drew this specifically for Savage Society of Bronze. Um, uh, and I was just blown away by it. Didn't know it existed. And I can't tell you the joy when I finally won an eBay auction for it. Uh, and then you go again. This is the cover to the second issue, which is a spectacular piece of art. But Gary hadn't learned depth yet. So it's this giant flat image. And one of the reasons I didn't do the remastering out for this year is I've been trying to get someone to help me pop Monk out further and sort of dilute the back because it's beautiful art but it just gets all murky uh, so that was the first two issues and if you click I can start to walk through issue three was the 50th anniversary uh, I did not realize that Savage Society Bronze was the only fanzine, the only thing out there, I believe, that celebrated the 50th anniversary. I think you and I were chatting about that last year. Well, actually, I did write an article on the subject for the last issue of Comic Scene, which was published by the Starlog Group. Okay. So that's an article in a mag professional magazine, right. a newsstand magazine, but yeah, this was probably the only thing privately published that, you know, went to the trouble. Yep. And I got, I used, reused one of Frank Hamilton's pieces of art which was, I think, like the 47th anniversary of Doc Savage, and then I had Gary Goodman create the bottom art. Uh, you click to the next. This is a piece of internal art that Gary Goodman did. Uh, again, he just, he would churn out art, and you'd receive an envelope, a large envelope, and, and you, knew, you knew there would be all this great artwork inside. Click to the next one. Uh, and then I received a letter from Doc Savage who had somehow gotten a copy, uh, and I was so thrilled. I was so thrilled, and I, this is actually why I did the gold, uh, the bronze, as close as I could get to bronze uh, paper that I could. Uh, do you want to tell any of the story behind this, or do we just well, leave it as Doc? I'm trying to remember. Being very the, impressed, by the way, with yeah, this fan scene. I'm trying to remember. Yeah. You know, I mean, I read it not knowing who the real author was, uh, really? But, yeah. Okay. If I, if I, if I remember correctly, right. which yeah. I'm never guaranteeing, but it's, I seem to recall reading that and having, or something like it, he, the, a couple of those letters may have circulated to other people or other editors, but I'm not sure I knew who, who wrote that at that time, but I could be misremembering because it's a long time ago. Okay. But wow. the story behind it, if I'm not mistaken, was one of the regular people took it upon himself to, you know, impersonate Doc Savage and give everybody a little bit of uh, a head-scratching time. Yep. And, and he got the zip code wrong. And it bothers him to this day. <laughs> so go ahead, next slide. 
This is my favorite issue. Uh, again, this is Frank Hamilton doing a cover specifically for me. Uh, I had bought this pulp. This had ended up being my favorite cover, and so I didn't realize. Again, it shows up in the mail, and he drew his version of this cover. If you click to the next. Uh, this is the table of contents. Uh, Will Murray, take uh, next to me again. Uh, Doc Savage, Method of Self-Development, which if you didn't have the pulps, you didn't even know existed. And you wrote a whole article, and I think we, I took a whole bunch of screen, oh, screenshots, huh? Uh, Xeroxes mm -hmm. of, of that. Uh, and then Nick Carr, this is what Nick Carr was writing uh, for this as well, Shelby Peck. Uh, this is actually The Wizard of Gallows Hill. So this is funny. In the first three issues, Shelby wrote Doc Savage fan fiction. And you referenced Paul Bonner. Paul Bonner was also a subscriber. And he wrote me a letter after the third issue and said, you can't, you can't do that. Like, I, I, I'm enjoying it, and I should have told you sooner, but you can't do this. And so I wrote a letter to Gary Goodman, and Gary had a fit, and he thought, you know, like, oh, they're suing you. And I'm like, no, 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 it's just been a whole big misunderstanding. But Shelby had to end up rewriting the stories as the King's Men. And then he and Gary worked together on character development of that. So this was the first part where it became not Doc Savage. Um, let's see, uh, Link Huller wrote for that as well. Uh, Le Conre Dessut was, I'm trying to remember who it was who wrote that. Um, uh, Rick uh, wrote as well, Altonic. Uh, Nate Greenberg, who is my oldest friend in the world, uh, I made him subscribe to the fanzine uh, to boost the numbers, and then I had to make him write a profile. Um, and this, this was a fun issue. This was, uh, I, I think it sort of became what I wanted it to. It was, I think, 32 pages at this point, and I never really got much above that. But uh, this, this was a fun issue. If you click to the next, this is a back cover. So Gary Goodman is now at Joe Kubert's School of Art, and you can see his art improving over the course of time. So if you click to the next one, he didn't do a cover art for me, and this is, anyone who's done fanzine knows this is the challenge, is when someone, when you don't get cover art, you don't know what to do. You have all these great articles. And so Howard Hopkins sent a cover in, and I used it, and again, a lot of people were very critical of the art, but he bailed me out, uh, and you know, it's, it's, it's a fine piece of art, but again, it, <laughs> At the time, people were very particular. Uh, if you click to the next, um, Howard also did a, a back cover for me. This is right before he did Golden Perils. I think he actually did Golden Perils partially because I had stopped publishing because he would be writing for me. Uh, click to the next. Uh, this is sort of more of a collage of artwork that, that Gary did. And again, by the end, his art was getting really good. That was the back cover. Uh, this is issue six, I think, is the next. Uh, that's the cover they did to there. Uh, the stories that Shelby was writing were starting to get longer and longer and were taking up more and more pages. Uh, and so there was some complaints on that. And so that was issue six. Issue seven is about to come along. I have no artwork whatsoever. And I receive an envelope. If you click to the next. Um, oh, I'm sorry. This is more original art that was done by Gary. Uh, and I really liked it because it started to feel more like the pulps. You know, we started to get individual characters, and, and I really thought we started to breathe that life. But if you go to the next, 
this piece of art by Eric Stedman, unsolicited, just he sent me this piece of art with that header and had done all of it. It's probably still my favorite cover uh, that he had done. Uh, absolutely blown away by it. And it included two more pieces, if you click. Um, and again, this was just a sketch. He's like, I don't know if I'm any good. Uh, I don't know if you want to publish these or not. And then you click this, this was the center page spread. Um, so issue seven also was, it was the last issue I did. I had no artwork for issue eight, uh, if you click to the next. This was the back cover, and this was teasing the, not only issue eight, but I was going to do a sequel magazine that had more pages. It was gonna be eight and a half by 11. It was gonna be more like Echoes. Uh, and at this point I was in college, and I'd been using my mom's IBM Selectric typewriter, um, and I kept, she kept, she couldn't understand why her ribbon kept uh, running out of ink, and it was because of me. Uh, so if you click to the next, uh, Gary Goodman had to do projects at the Joe Kubert School of Art. So unbeknownst to me, he added me as a writer to a comic book that he was doing there and put my name on the credits to click to the next. He actually did a full page. I did nothing on this whatsoever, but he threw my name on it, I guess, because he needed some right. Some, some right. Uh, so that, that was cool. Um, clicking to the next. Um, so again, he and Shelby Peck are, e are, emailing, huh, are mailing back and forth, designing all of these characters, and I finally got a snapshot into some of the stuff that he was sending. So you can click through some of these. These were the sketches that he did uh, when I, I actually have Shelby's uh, next two Kingsman stories that uh, have only one part's been published. So at some point I'm planning on doing a full republish, but I also have all this unpublished artwork, which again, I didn't know existed until about a year ago. So you can click through, this is his version of Doc King, Doc Keen, uh, click to the next. Uh, and then these are story notes. So uh, again, at some point I'm going to be hanging out with Lana, I'm going to review all of this and see if there's something to kind of bring this together for a 41st anniversary box set. You can click to the next. So I was starting to work on Savage Society of Bronx number eight. Uh, street shooting was my column and I was trying to steal different logos that I found. If you click to the next, uh, the letters column was Cargo Unknown, so when I finally got a copy of Cargo Unknown, I decided to zero out that. Um, and these are some of the pages that I was working on, and more recently I tried to clean them up. So if you click, I don't know if you remember writing this article, but this was uh, a very evergreen article. This is, I can run this at any point, Tox Savage on hiatus in 1985. Uh, and then also the NPR show that you were associated with. That was another thing that was going on at that time. I was always juggling a lot of yep. stuff, but that was that took a long time to go from the first idea to the actual taping. But yeah, that was going on at that time, I'm remembering now. I just don't remember the year they actually taped. It was three or four years after they yep. thought they'd be taping them. It, were you the driving force behind that? Did you recommend it to them, or no, did they reach out to you? They reached out to me. Roger Rittner of the Variety Arts Radio Theater was a big doc fan, and he he was first interested in taping Luster Dent's uh, Doc Savage radio scripts, but was disappointed to find there were 15 <coughs> episodes and they were self-contained. Not very commercial these days, or any day 
since 1927 or something. So um, we, I may have suggested this. I may have suggested that he and I adapt the novels because that's what we ended up doing. We picked a, each picked a novel and adapted it in several parts, and they actually picked up picked follow-up novels to adapt that were never done. But you know, um, that was my first radio writing, my last radio writing, if I'm not mistaken. So um, it was a neat project, but uh, yeah, that was starting around that time because if I'm not mistaken, that was aired in '84. So it was probably started '81, '82. It coincided with them when Odyssey Publications released the uh, first uh, Doc Savage radio script book, and everybody thought, you know, wow, these are great episodes, except they were 15 minutes, right. and there just wasn't room to to tell much of a story. So um, so are you saying that's not published? That's not published yet, but okay. you know, maybe next year. Now okay. is that something I wrote back then or is that one of the things I sent you recently that uh, I found I think in it's my... something that you sent me back then. Oh really? So okay. if you click forward to the next one, uh, again Rick Rick Reply, I never know how to pronounce his name. Uh, I should ask him. Uh, <laughs> This is uh, an article he wrote, and if you flip to the next, this is one of Shelby Pack's. This was Island of the Flying Fish uh, that he was going to do, and again, trying to clean up. So at, at some point, I hope to publish this, uh, and sort of as a throwback uh, to what issue eight would have been. Click to the next. Um, also, Chuck uh, Welsh from Bronze uh, um, Gazette. Uh, asked me to write a remembrance last year. It's kind of funny because those of us who were doing Doc Savage fanzines, Doc Savage Quarterly that Bill Laidlaw was doing, Doc Savage Club Reader, The King Nemesis, uh, we kind of ran out of material on Doc Savage. Uh, and then we stopped. And then <laughs> the Browns Gazette is now at whatever issue yeah, might yeah. be something, uh, and they're still writing those articles. I think those of us who have been around for a long time, you sort of see a lot of the themes coming back. But I gotta say, Bronze Gazette is just doing a spectacular job, and just, just a lot of really interesting articles that are out there. So this was fun, and this sort of led me to sort of think about doing the 40th anniversary. Uh, you click to the next. Um, so I have a couple other things that I can show, uh, and also a radio uh, dramatization of Doc King that I can play a little bit of. Uh, but I did want to give an opportunity, if there are any questions, uh, for Mir will do that, and if we run out of questions, then we can pop over. And, and this is what we were referencing before uh, when I did my Cannonball uh, panel last year with Baby Yoda. Uh, I dropped this wonderful chip in there. So, any questions? Well, there was seven issues. The first issue, 50 copies. Mm. Uh, and I think I topped out, I was, the later issue I was doing 200 to 250. And some of the later issues, I think I may have done 500. Because I was, I mean, I had, I was, I was sending out copies to France, uh, Great Britain, so it was an international magazine, I remember talking about when I applied for college. Um, but uh, yeah, it was it was over 100 subscribers. Um, but it was tough. It was tough because you know you get people sending money in, and then you're using it, and publishing is always a little bit more expensive, and the mail goes up, and 
and all those different things. And I used to always show up at PulpCon with copies so I could hand them out to people to, so they could get the first copies of it. And Al Tonic used to complain. He's like, I don't have time to read this. Why don't you mail this to me? Because I don't have time. Uh, but yeah, no, it was fun. Any other questions? Okay. Well, I have a question. Okay. Well, why did it take you so long to figure out to go from white covers to goldenrod and the other colors you used? I used to do publishing at um, Surf Speedy, which was the publishing shop down the street. Uh, and it didn't occur to me to not use white covers in the beginning. Uh, and I think when I finally got to the third issue, which had the Doc Savage letter, I realized I had to do it on bronze paper. And again, this is the closest color that they could, mm -hmm. that they could get to. And at that point, I started to use bronze, two issues of that. And then with this cover, I just felt green was sort of a better, everyone hated this green color. Everyone hated it. Uh, and then just started to change colors throughout time. But in the beginning, you know, you're just trying to get it together. And give me a break, I was 16. Yeah, I know, but you, know? I, so. I, you were inspired by the Odyssey pamphlets, which are all colored covers, so I yeah. wondered why it took you a while to do it. I think it probably cost more in the beginning, yeah, yeah, too. Sure it did. I know, know that when so. I look at these covers now, I'm remembering how happy I was with the issues where it started to get a little more professional in terms of the cover art and the color. Because as a contributor, when you get something in that's printed, you know, you look at the cover first, the cover is the thing that kind of gets you excited about opening the, the book, of course. So when you started to move in that direction, I started to feel like this was becoming more and more of a thing that uh, I was more and more happy with, even though I was happy with it in the beginning because it was something new. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, looking back, I wish I had continued with it. Uh, but I was in college, and it just, you know, like, my, it was my mom's IBM Selectric. We didn't have computers back then. I think they were just starting to be introduced. Uh, but uh, it, I had a blast doing it. And, and if you actually click to the next, this is actually the world premiere of what I was planning on calling the sequel magazine, Troubleshooters Unincorporated. Because I always, everyone, everyone was always incorporated. I thought they need to be unincorporated. Uh, and this was going to cover all of the all of the hero pulps, all the bloody pulps, um, and uh, so yeah, that was the logo that I designed for it. Uh, and who knows, maybe at some point I will I will get back around to it. Uh, and if you click to the next thing, um, this is uh, Lana uh, Peck and friends became enamored with the stories that Shelby Peck had written, and they put together a radio drama. So if you click forward, this is uh, All episode. the adventures of Dr. Keen and the Phenomenal 50 are dedicated to the memory of Shelby Peck. Oh. Please enjoy. Until he was transformed into a weapon for justice. 
with the phenomenal 50. Doc Keen faces the greatest challenges of the day, a living incarnation of the phenomenal oath of righteousness. Today's adventure, The Wizard of Gallows Hill, Part 5. Brought to you by Ichabod's Hats for Men. Look, we know fashion can be a mystery, but just remember not to wear white after Labor Day, and if you're outside, it's a good place to wear a hat. Nobody's telling you to wear hats indoors, but if you are, we're not mad at you. Check out our selection of indoor hats for men, like the indoor deer stalker, the indoor bowler, the indoor sombrero. Perfect for all indoor occasions. So come on, guys, we can do this. Wear a hat, please. And now, on to the adventure. Doc Keen and his phenomenals are called to investigate strange doings on in Salem, Massachusetts. Valley would introduce them to government official Miss Suell and her assistant, Sam Lord, and more importantly, Michelle Smalls found a cat. When we last left our heroes, Doc Keen and the phenomenals were discovering that a chief doctor investigating an outbreak of the Gallows Hill curse was now a patient. Will Doc Keen discover the cause and a cure? Find out as the adventures of Doc Keen and the Phenomenal 50 continues. All of the adventures of Dr. Keen and the Phenomenal 50 are dedicated to the memory of Shelby's back. So there's six episodes of that. There, there, there are they are a lot of fun. Um, so since we have a few more minutes, um, do you want to talk about uh, Red Spider? No, no. I will. <laughs> um, in, in the context, let's see. The, the Red Spider misadventure was before you started. Right. Yeah. Okay. The Red. But it factored into my interest. Okay. Um, I had the opportunity to visit the Paul Bonner's offices in the 78 or 77 when I was in college. And I went through the card files on Doc Savage. And at the end, I found a payment record for a story called In Hell, Madonna, and no publication date. And it didn't match any of the published novels. And they knew nothing about it at Condé Nast because they inherited those files. And I realized, to my shock and surprise, that there was an unpublished Doc Savage novel left over when the magazine was canceled. So I went on a search for it, and the, you know, the first thing I attempted was, I think, sorry, Um, I was in touch with Mrs. Dent at that time, and I probably reached out to her first, but it was news to her, and if she had anything, she would have it. Now, a lot of the Street and Smith unpublished manuscripts ended up at the uh, Syracuse University where the Street and Smith collection was, and they couldn't find it. But I went up there with another um, Doc fan, Daryl Herrick, who was also a resident of Massachusetts. We went up one weekend and ripped through the files looking for it, couldn't find it, found some other interesting things, including an unpublished Doc Savage comics script from 1943, if I'm not mistaken. And um, eventually, 
Mrs. Dent found the carbon, but she wanted to be paid for it. Even though Lester Dent was paid for it, she had the only, once she found out she had the only copy, she had that leverage. So she wasn't going to do it for nothing. I mean, all these Doc Savage books were being reprinted, she didn't get a penny. So, um, Condon S. made her a, a modest offer, which she rejected. No, Banton made a modest offer, because I was in touch with them at that time. And she rejected it as too modest, so Condon S. matched the amount, so they paid her $1,000 for a photocopy. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, while that was going on, she sent me a photocopy of, I think, one page of the outline. So I started to get a feeling of what the story was going to be about. It was a Cold War story. And I remember when I finally got to read the manuscript, she'd had it typed over. She actually she didn't do a photocopy. She had someone type over the carbon because uh, it was so brittle. So uh, she sent me a carbon of carbon or whatever. Uh, and I was extremely pleased with how good it was because the story before was kind of random. The story after that was also kind of random. And this, but this was a solid, well-told espionage story. It was like a new, a new direction for Doc Savage, but the new editor came in, Daisy Bacon, put that manuscript aside because the readers didn't like Cold War stories. They were complaining. And uh, it was never published. They went ahead and published the ones that came in afterwards. So uh, it was one of the proudest things in my, my life that I was able to or you know, discover and get this thing into print because not only was it a new Doc Savage novel, it was a great Doc Savage novel. So, um, oddly enough, it didn't sell any better than the, any of the reprints, but at least it's out there. What, what, what about the name change? Yeah, we, uh, they didn't like the title. And Dent had actually, Street Smith didn't like the title. So I had a copy of a telegram that said this, sent to Street and Smith with a whole bunch of alternate titles. None of which, you know, one or two were good, but they wouldn't necessarily be good on a book. So I came up with The Red Spider. And uh, I think partly because Dent had uh, suggested The Prince in Red as one title. Uh, and so I came up with that, which turned out to be fortunate because the Larkin painting was built on the concept that, uh, that was presented in the title if it hadn't, we might have seen just a Kremlin image or something that was really generic. So it worked out. Years later, um, many years later, there was a sequel. Tony Tolan and I were you know, reprinting Doc Savage. And Tony was in, connected with Ed Cartier, who had illustrated both Doc and the Shadow. And with uh, Ed's son, uh, Whose name I'm blanking on at the exact moment, but I know it. Um, uh, and Ed's son reached out to us, especially to me, saying, you know, we found some unpublished art or art we can't match. And there were two pieces labeled in Hell Madonna. And we realized that the story had gotten to the point of being probably typeset and illustrated. And so we arranged to reprint, or to print for the first time, those pieces of art with the story when Tony got around to reprinting The Red Spider. So, we, we, so, when, so in its second, second return 
uh, into print, uh, it was graced by Ed Cartier art that had never seen the light of day. So it was like a double discovery. So we lucked out. Any other questions for me or Will? Cool. I think that's time. Thanks, everybody. Uh, and You've been listening to a Pulp Event podcast brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines for over 25 years. Please visit us online at thepulp.net. Also, look for the PulpNet on Facebook and on Twitter. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps. This Pulp Event Podcast is copyright 2022 by William P. Lampkin, all rights reserved.